Our today's story takes us to Portland, Oregon in November of 1988. Muluketa Sirah, a 28-year-old student and Ethiopian immigrant, is rushed to Emmanuel Hospital early in the morning. He's already in dire condition. Muluketa has just been beaten with a baseball bat and the bloody wounds span his entire body including multiple bashes to his head. By the time Mulugata's uncle, a man named Njida Birhanu, hears of the news and flies to Portland from Oakland, California, it's already too late. By 9.30 a.m., Mulugata is dead. And it doesn't take long to find out who did it. When police arrest three young white men, a week later, the reason behind Mulukata's death becomes much clearer. This is Invisible Hate. I am Sadia Khan. And I'm Asad Bhatt. Welcome back to Invisible Hate, a weekly true crime podcast where Asad and I research crimes committed against minority groups and then share the story with all of you. And then we usually try to figure out whether or not the case was a hate crime. Although for today, it seems like this might not be a long conversation for us, Sadia, just based on the intro that you just gave. But regardless of whether or not our cases are officially ruled as hate crimes, it's important to talk about them because there are always plenty of nuances and pieces of the conversation that are so valuable to discuss. Like for our story a couple weeks ago on Timothy Haslett Jr., we took a brief quiz to see how pressworthy we all would be if we went missing. Check out that episode too if you want to hear more about how that went. And adding to what Asad said, our goal here isn't just to tell you the true crime side of the story. We also want to get you thinking about the more difficult aspects of these stories. And what's more difficult to talk about than white supremacist groups? Unfortunately, they are the culprits of today's case. Let's get started. Asad, I think what's scariest about this case is how coincidentally it unfolds. I know coincidentally is a weird word to use here, but as I tell you more about the story, you'll probably feel the same way. So this is the type of story where everything, and I mean everything, had to line up in such a specific way to end in Mulugata's death. So listen carefully. The hours before the murder unfolds pretty unremarkably. It's a Saturday and it's a treasured day of rest for Mulukata, who's a busy man, alongside his studies in business and engineering at Portland Community College, he's held multiple side jobs over the past few years, a fast food restaurant worker, a well-loved custodian at an elementary school, a bus driver for the local airport. The money isn't great, which is understandable, but he works hard anyways because he's been sending money to his girlfriend and their six-year-old son, Hanok, who both still live in Ethiopia. 
He even plans to bring them to America soon. Mulukata himself has been in the States for eight years now, since 1980, according to a book called A Hundred Little Hitlers by journalist Eleanor Langer, which details Mulukata's murder. Mulukata has been following in the footsteps of his uncle, a man named Njida Berhanu, who also moved to America to go to college back in 1973. And Jida even helped Mulukata find an American family to sponsor him. And for Mulukata, this is a life saver. So I am no expert on Ethiopian history, but I did learn that from 1976 to 1978, Ethiopia was engaged in a brutal civil dispute, often referred to as the Red Terror. Oh. With a name like that, you can only imagine the severity, right? And Mulukata was living in the capital city, Addis Ababa, during the terror. He no doubt witnessed some of the horrors that caused many Ethiopians to leave their country. And maybe it's the memory of those years that keeps him motivated despite his busy schedule. You know, I think, Sadia, that... Mulugata sounds like the kind of stereotypical immigrant that we think of in our head. Someone who comes to America, works hard, sending money back to his family. Just seems like a really stand-up guy. Absolutely, Asad. But for now, coming back to the day off, it's a restful Sunday, November 12th of 1988. And he and a friend, a fellow Ethiopian man named Tilahun Antina, decide to go out for dinner and party, according to Langer and her book. So as I said, we have taken a lot of information from this book, just an FII for our listeners. Anyways, as the evening goes on, the friends have a few drinks, which will become important later. So I want people to pay close attention to this fact. Shortly after midnight, as the partygoers get a little too intoxicated, Tilahun wants to take Mulukata home, but before they go, they are joined by another friend, a man named Von Wusen Tesfe. So now the three get in Tilahun's car to drive back to the Park Lane apartments where Mulukata lives. When they arrive though, there are no parking spaces, which happens, right? So they decide to just chill out for a while in the middle of the road. Now you may find this weird and it may seem a bit odd and even a little unsafe, but keep in mind that this is a residential area. At one o'clock in the morning, it's not like they are in the middle of an interstate highway. The area must be quiet, at least that's what I'm assuming here. So the three friends sit and smoke probably chatting here and there the night seems to be coming to an end it just reminds me you know i've done this type of thing dozens of times growing up and and even now you know sometimes when you're listening to a good podcast you just kind of park the car and you finish the story um, before you you keep on going with your day so nothing surprising here to me you're absolutely right asit but little do they know another car coming down the road is about to change these three friends' lives forever. Suddenly, they hear a car honk, 
shortly followed by someone asking them to move out from the middle of the road. Another car has come down the street from the opposite direction and they are trying to get through. A reasonable enough request, right? Yeah, totally. So Dilahun, who has been driving, tries to start his engine, but again, according to Langer, who is where we got most of these details from, the car fails. He tries again, but by now the two groups have started to notice each other. Tilahun, Wan Wusun, and Mulukata see that squeezed into the second car are six people total, three young white men and three young white women. This group of six, on the other hand, has noticed that the car sitting in the middle of the road is full of their worst enemies. You see, these three men and their girlfriends are white supremacists. They are all from lower income households and they are young, late teens and early 20s. But they are also full of energy. Of course, just being a white supremacist is bad enough. But this group is also really active in their beliefs, Asad. While Mulukata and his friends were having dinner, guess what they were doing? This group was handing out flyers for the Aryan Youth Movement and hosting a political meeting. Oh man. Now Langer writes that this group isn't too refined. Most of the time they are drunk, but that doesn't mean they aren't dangerous. They are part of a gang called the East Side White Pride and they are what could be called skinheads. Now for our listeners, if you're unfamiliar with the term, it's just a name for members of new Nazi affiliation, most often violent and associated with a shaved head. That's right, Sadia. Really quickly though, I want to mention that skinhead did not begin as a racist subculture. Um, we learned in our research that it actually began as a punk subculture for working class people in England. I didn't know that, and I think it's just important to point that out. That's good to know, Asad. Anyways, back to the case. As it turns out, Mulukata has been living a stone's throw away from one of the East Side White Pride's other members, a guy named Nick Heise. Nick's apartment is where the group of six was just leaving from, I want to pause here for a second because this is what I originally meant when I said this case felt so coincidental. Remember, Asid, I said that in the beginning? 100%, yeah. So for one thing, Mulukata and his friends were only in the middle of the street because they didn't have a parking space. And then when the two cars confront each other, remember that Tilahun's car has trouble starting? And then, of course, imagine learning you live next to a white supremacist. So many factors had to align in order for these two groups to meet each other at 1 a.m. when there is no one else around. And I think about, in my head, the scenarios that you just described. And, you know, a lot of them have happened to me individually. And so for them to all line up, you know... 100%. It's it's such a coincidence, unfortunately, in, in this case. But it reminded me of a time once in which I uh, got rear-ended and 
I couldn't move my car and I was in a busy intersection and I was just so flustered and I didn't know what to do. So I can only imagine, you know, what's going on in, in their head when their car isn't starting and then, you know, they see who they're, you know, about to meet. I can totally envision myself in this scenario. So, Sadia, what happens once these groups see each other? Well, I said, as you can imagine, what begins as a pretty civil confrontation quickly turns into shouting, profanity, and racial slurs from the skinhead's car. Now, at the sound of racial slurs from a car parked full of white people at 1 a.m. in the morning, yeah, I would definitely be quick to turn my car around, right? I think that's what you would do too. But remember that Mudukita and his friends have had a couple of drinks as well. Maybe that lowers their reserve and understandably so heightens their anger because Mudukita's friends begin to shout back. They throw up the middle finger, shout fuck you. You know that type of thing? I certainly know that type of thing and I know I I, I don't (laughs) get to that level of anger myself very often, but certainly in certain situations I can see myself and I think a lot of young men being quick to anger when confronted by something like this. Right. Notice I said Mulugita's friends, Asad, not Mulugita himself. According to Eleanor Langer, once again, Mulugita can be characterized as more of a peacemaker. At this point, Mulugita gets out of the car so his friends can leave, even gesturing to both cars to calm down. So he's basically trying to calm everybody down. This is also why it is so important for us to give you an outline of Mulugita's character from the beginning. Remember that this is a father, a student, a hard worker. Now, you must be thinking, those qualities don't necessarily ensure someone's personality, right? I get it. But by all accounts, this is not the type of guy to look for a fight. And remember, he's seen violence as a teenager during the Red Terror. I'm sure he didn't want to see any more of that, especially in the place he felt safe enough to move his family to. Yeah, you know, Sadia, I think, you know, we're still getting to know each other, but I my general impression of you is as a peacemaker um, and that, you know, not quick to anger. <laughs> Maybe not, Sadia. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll learn more, I guess, as we do more of these podcasts. But generally, you know, s- same with me. I think, though, there are times where I can be, you know, quick to anger and quick to temper. I think, you know, my general response would be to be passive aggressive or, you know, days later come up with the perfect line that I should have said and, you know, not say it. So Sadi, what happens next? So now with Mulugita out of the car, both vehicles try to pass each other, which is a good thing, right? Now they're trying to pass each other. But in order for either car to move, they have to back up. I said, this is giving me goosebumps, right? It's so scary. I can visualize all of it. I can imagine myself being there. It's so scary and so palpable. So they have to readjust themselves and then pass slowly through the narrow space of the road. Inching along beside each other, the close proximity seems to heighten their road rage. So the skinheads detect an accent from Tilahun and Wan Wusun, both if you remember are Ethiopian like Mulugita. So now amidst already racist slurs, 
the skinheads supposedly yell, go back to your country. Oh, no. A comment which, by the way, always strikes me as ironic, considering the fact that white people are not indigenous to America. Sadia, the one thing that I've learned from you and your podcast and, and knowing you is that that is one thing that I would never say to you and obviously to other people as well. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that is a charged line um, that we've learned. Absolutely, Asit, and you're spot on. But let's keep going. The cars had been moving apart, but now they both come to a stop. Unfortunately, I couldn't find any testimonies directly from Tilahun or Von Wusen, but Langer claims that it's quote-unquote probable that Tilahun and Von Wusen are the ones who stopped their car first. Uh-oh. But she doesn't say what she's basing that probability on. Anyways, by this point, Tilahun and Von Wusen would have been well aware that they are outnumbered. And secondly, Langer herself characterizes the East Side White Pride Gang to be the type of people to go looking for trouble, like seriously, hating other races is their whole purpose. But either way, the men from both cars stop, leap out, and despite the alcohol in their systems, they start fighting. For a moment, the fight is two to two, two skinheads, Steve Strasser at 20 years old and Kyle Brewster at 19, fist fight, Tillahun and Von Wusen. The way Langer describes it, Muluguta isn't even in the initial mix, but he decides to help his friends. When Muluguta interjects, that's when the third skinhead, Ken Meski, leaps from the car. At 23 years old, Ken is also horrifyingly known as Ken Death, mostly for his love of death metal music, but soon that moniker will be all too real. Ken grabs a Louisville Slugger baseball bat from the back seat and it's telling that the group has one handy asset because something tells me they are not using it to play the sport, right? Ken runs over and smashes the taillights and windows of Tillahun's car, while at the same time, the three skinhead girlfriends encourage him from the backseat. At this point, Von Wusen crawls under a car to escape Steve Strasser. But then, Ken runs towards Tillahun with his bat. Apparently, Tillahun is able to get in his car and drive away narrowly escaping what might have been his own death. But as for Mulukata, Kyle Brewster is now fighting with him and him alone. Tilahun is gone and I assume from what I've read that Von Wusen is still hiding under a car. So Mulukata is the only one left. Kind of scapegoat, a representative of everything these skinheads hate. Because in that moment, Asad, Ken Death rushes up to Mulukata and slugs his bat oh. across the side of his head. Mulukata drops to the ground, but Ken keeps swinging while Kyle and Steve kick at his body, 
with their steel-toed boots. Eventually, they get in the car and speed away, leaving Mulukita in a pool of blood. You know, Sadia, this is just so devastating and wild. I just, uh, for someone to get hit in the head with a baseball bat, the amount of power and impact that that has, uh, you know, clearly just tremendously impactful. You know, for me, I just, this goes from zero to 10 in just a matter of moments. And, you know, this kind of life and death decision of bringing out a baseball bat and then using it against someone, oh, just, it's devastating. Absolutely. I said, we can't even imagine what must be going through Murugata's mind at the time. It's just so scary, so horrific, so sad. Mulukata dies a few hours later in the hospital. Now, Langer writes that around 5 a.m., someone calls Njida Burhanu. We don't know who called, who lives in California, as I mentioned in the beginning. Remember that this is Mulukata's uncle who came to the States years before Mulukata himself did? His nephew is already dead. But of course, he knows someone is responsible. Now, based on the details we could find, it seems most likely that Von Woosen may have called 911 because I think he was still under the car. But once detectives speak to him and Tilahun, they have trouble describing the men who murdered their friend. Keep in mind how dark it must have been, not to mention the fact that they didn't even know these men. But according to Brian Denson's 2014 story in the Oregonian daily newspaper, a confidential informant ends up identifying the three members of the East Side White Pride who are responsible for Mulukata's murder. So at the very least, this case wraps up quickly, which is good. Sources say that within a week, Kyle Brewster, Steve Strasser and Ken Meske, Ken Death, were arrested. Yeah, you know, sadly, it just it makes me think this is, you know, obviously 1988, so pre-cell phone days, so there's no recording, there's no tracking of, you know, where people are. And so, you know, maybe this kind of violence, I, I don't know, but maybe our listeners know, but maybe it was easier to get away with this kind of, you know, violence where the perpetrators and the victims don't know each other ahead of time. And so, um, and can easily get away in the dead of night. And so it's, it's great that in, in a confidential informant you know, ends up uh, bringing them justice. Yeah, and the law made quick and easy work of these guys, I said. The Portland-based news source Willamette Week writes in a 2018 article that Ken Meske was sentenced to life for murder, which is great. In 2011, after 23 years of his sentence, Meske died, apparently of hepatitis C. As for Brewster and Strasser, they each received 20-year sentences for manslaughter as opposed to murder, but both got out early, which to me is ridiculous, Asad. I don't know why it happened, and it really makes me angry, but unfortunately, that's how sometimes the system works. Sadi, I totally hear what you're saying, and you know, I don't necessarily agree or disagree. You know, I think that for me... Um, 
you know, as we've talked about this before, it, you know, the purpose of prison is to rehabilitate. And, you know, these kids were so young when this happened. And so, you know, mm. for me, 20 years is might be just and the the hope is that they come out reformed um, and leave productive lives as, as citizens and, and not revert back to their white supremacist ways. Yeah, so I hear you. That's an important point. And thank you for pointing that out. Now, news sources don't even say exactly why they got out early. So we don't know why. But as you said, it may be for the best because at the end of the day, they were very young when this incident happened. But Steve Strasser was released in 1999 and apparently quit the white supremacist movement. It's great. No new sources report on his whereabouts since then. So we don't have any information on him. But here's the thing, Asad. The third one, Kyle Brewster, has unfortunately slithered his way back into the public eye. And get this, he was released in 2002 on parole and then, according to the Oregonian, arrested again in 2006 when he violated parole. And then after being released again, he was arrested again in 2008 for assaulting a police officer. So this guy... No reformation for him, Asad. Yeah. And this man has not let up on his racist beliefs at all. And you know how we know this? Because ever since he was released in 2010, he's made himself known politically. The Oregonian news source has been keeping track of him as recently as 2021, Asad. In the fall of 2020, Brewster attended a proud boy rally held in Portland. Then he was spotted at a pro-Trump rally outside of Oregon State's Capitol building on January 6th of 2021. Oh, wow. Amazing. And yes, that was the same day that pro-Trump rioters attacked the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. Yeah, so Salia, it seems like my assumption is that Strausser was released and is now living a quiet life, not as a white supremacist. So, you know, he learned his lesson and Kyle Brewster doubled down on his hatred and so much so that he wanted to overthrow the government on January 6th. Well, fascinating how all this is interconnected. So Asad, given all the facts and the story thus far, what do you think? Was it a hate crime? Yes, Adia. I I think, you know, based on the facts, this seems like a pretty clear cut case of three guys and six people altogether that were looking to cause havoc. I guess I would go back to if uh, Mulugata and the two others were just white guys sitting in the car, would this have happened? And I think the answer is no. I think this happened because they were black and it happened because they were immigrants and it happened because the six people were white supremacists in the car. So yeah, to me, this is pretty clear as a hate crime. Absolutely, I said, I agree with you. And it happened because all of them had accents and these guys, skinheads, noticed that. So this pretty much seems like a hate crime. Yeah, so Sadia, do we know anything else about the case and, and Mulugata's family back home? Yes, absolutely, Asad. 
It may appear like this case has come to a close, but remember I mentioned Mulukita's girlfriend and six-year-old son? Yes. I will get to that soon, but first I want to introduce another player to this case. The Southern Poverty Law Center or SPLC. If you haven't heard of them before, this is a non-profit legal advocacy organization based in Alabama. Monitoring hate crimes is one of their specialties. So after the three skinheads, MySkip, Brewster and Strasser are arrested, the SPLC gets to work suing someone else too. Have you heard of Tom Metzger, Asit? No, Tom Metzger. No, no, I haven't. If you haven't, it's probably a good thing. Metzger, until his death in 2020, was the grand dragon of the Knights of the KKK in California. Wow. Grand dragon. I'm assuming that means it's a high level. I'm glad that I don't know what that is. But yeah, I would I would imagine that that's a high level of the KKK. Yeah, he advocated for extreme violence against anyone Jewish and non-white people. And a page on the SPLC's website has pulled a few of his quotes, including this one, Asad. And I quote, We will put blood on the streets like you've never seen and advocate more violence than both world wars put together. Unquote. So this guy is crazy. Clearly, uh, this guy, there's something wrong with him. What happened to him to have so much hatred in his heart? I don't know, Asad. I'm not sure I'll ever understand it. But at least now, you have a basic image of who this crazy Tom Metzger guy was. Now, he's important to the case because in the 80s, Metzger founded the White Aryan Resistance, the acronym literally being War. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. War was a politically active hate group that distributed newspapers, promoted certain political candidates, and generally prepared and organized, quote-unquote, troops of skinheads nationwide for the so-called racial revolution. And in 1988, Tom Metzger sent one of his members to Portland, Oregon, to help train and organize a group called the East Side White Pride Gang. Yes, this is the same hate group that Meske, Strasser and Brewster were members of at the time of Mulukuta's murder. Okay, I know there are a lot of elements here, so just know that the three men who killed Mulukuta were deeply influenced by this crazy guy and his ideology and his violent beliefs. After Mulukita died, Metzger even stated that the three men had, and I quote, done their civic duty. So I said, what more evidence do we need for it to be a hate crime, right? I mean, the fact that this guy's organization is called war, you know, just unbelievable. So this is how the SPLC was able to claim that Metzger was partially responsible for encouraging actions that led to Mulukita's murder. So in October of 1990, two years after Mulukita's died, SPLC successfully sued Metzger for $12.5 million. Now this guy definitely did not have that much money, Asad, which is like, okay, whatever. 
But in the end, Gulugita's family received about $200,000 and Metzger and the White Aryan Resistance went bankrupt. That's great. On top of that, Metzger lost his home and he was required to make monthly payments to Henok, Mulukita's son, for 20 years. Fabulous, yeah. Again, Metzger is dead now, but he deserved every bit of his punishment and then some. I am so glad that he was treated the way he was. And last but definitely not least, let's talk about the fate of Mulukita's family. Yeah. Now, Asit, I want to have a quick discussion on this part too, because even though it's unrelated to the actual murder, something really interesting happened to his son, Henok, after all of this went down. So when his father died, Henok was only six or seven years old. Remember, he had not yet come to the States. Right. Henok and his mother were still in Ethiopia. Two years later, when the SPLC sued Metzger and the White Aryan Resistance, Henok came to the United States with his grandfather, who is Mulugita's father. According to the SPLC article on Mulugita Serov from 2020, Henok and his grandfather watched the trial against Metzger. This is how Henok met a guy named James McElroy. McElroy was a lawyer on this case working with the SPLC as a board chairman. Well, fast forward a couple of months, once the Siroff family wins their money and McElroy travels to Ethiopia to see Henok and his mother, this is where I thought it got interesting, Asid. First, McElroy wants Henok to stay with him in the US over the summer, which is fine. Then when the summer ends, he wants Henok to stay in the US for school And then he asks his mother to actually adopt Hannah. Wow. Yeah, which basically means giving up her legal parental rights. Now, this 2020 SPLC article details that Hannah's mother was only making $1 a day. So it seems McElroy was just trying to do some good. But I don't know, Asad. I find it a little problematic. Well, that's interesting. Why is that? Because I think it sounds a bit exploitative to me for him to ask Henoch's mother to give him up. And then Henoch coming to a country whose racial tensions had killed his father and being alone here. I don't know how traumatic that would be for Henoch. Yeah. No, I think these are great questions. I think for me, there's no doubt that his life would be significantly different if he were to come to the States as opposed to staying in Ethiopia. There are both positives and negatives to that. For me, the way that I think about it is that this is what Mulugata wanted, right? He wanted his family to come over. And so whether his son would be the only one that could come over, obviously that's not ideal. But, you know, this is what he wanted for his family. And so I don't find it as problematic as you do. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about Portland, Oregon. I know we talked about its racial history on one of our other episodes. And since you live there, I wanted to get your perspective on what's been happening, if you have any updates. So, yeah, Sade, we've done a couple stories now about Portland, the city where I live. And I think it's important to kind of understand that, yeah, 
Portland has some really dark parts of its history, and I think they are making amends every year, every decade. They're they're getting better and better with their uh, with their history, and you know I think it's important to to note that. Portland itself has placed plaques on 16 different street signs around the area where Mulligata lived. Mm. Um, these signs have a small photo of him as well as his name in both English and uh, Amharic, which was the native language of where Mulligata lived. In further remembrance of his death, Portland actually did a 30-year uh, memorial um, that was led by a civil rights group called the Urban League. This can't obviously bring Amalgata back to life, and it hasn't stopped hate crimes completely, but I think it's a testament to the direction that Portland is going in and um, who they aspire to be. And it's a good start, Asad, so I'll say that. I want to come back to Hanok and talk a little bit about where he is right now and what's happening in his life. We don't have too much information, but what we know is that Hanok is in his 40s now. He's lived beyond the age his own father was when he died in 1988. And that to me is heartbreaking, Asad. He has his own family and he works as a pilot and a captain for a major airline. But I'm sure he carries the memory of his father with him every day. Now, maybe some people can pretend that racial terror ended a long time ago. But a whole lot of people alive today were also alive in 1988, including this man who lost his father in such a brutal way. This is definitely an important story, and I hope it encourages our listeners on their path towards social change. Asad, as we wrap up, I want our listeners to know that there are a billion more details on this story that we couldn't cover today because we only have limited amount of time to cover a story. I would really encourage everyone to check out the book A Hundred Little Hitlers by Eleanor Langer. It was a very helpful source throughout this episode. And maybe if you are from Portland and want to know more about some of the sticky history in your city, or maybe you're just interested to learn more about this conversation, check out this article we found in The Atlantic called The Racist History of Portland, the Whitest City in America. Sometimes the truth is a hard pill to swallow, but I'll leave a link in the show notes so that you can check out this article. Thanks so much for listening to Invisible Hate. If you want to learn more, check out links in the show notes about the case. Please email us your thoughts on this story or any other story that you think we should cover. You can always reach us at info at invisiblehatepodcast.com. You can also tweet us or hit us up on Instagram. Just search for Invisible Hate Podcast. Thanks again for listening. If you like what you hear, please share it with a friend. Give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Invisible Heat is a joint production of Refilion Media and Immigrantly. We would like to thank our team, which includes Michaela Strother, Isabel Havens, Lindsay Gamble, and Paroma Chakravarti. Our music was done by Simon Hutchinson. We will be back next week with another hate crime for us to analyze. Until next time, I am Sadia Khan. And I'm Asad Bhatt.